He is a Denver native born of Denver natives. A former Denver chief deputy district attorney, he is now an active Colorado trial lawyer. Bright, independent, and full of fun, he has been part of the media for decades. This is The Craig Silverman Show. What a world, what a life, what a day. Saturday, February 25, 2023. Episode 137 is special. We have Debbie Ortega, a major candidate for Denver mayor. She's been a city councilor at large. She knows Denver okay better than me. She's lived here longer. I started earlier. I'm a native. She got here as fast as she can from Raton, New Mexico. She got here as a tween. Went to West High. She has been involved in Denver city government a long time. Now she wants to be mayor. Please evaluate her. What a nice woman. What a dedicated public servant. First, we talk about Ukraine. We talk about Alex Murdoch, too. My buddy Greg Gold in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge does another drop. He was featured in episode 95 and 97, 97, with his buddy Alex Grogan. Episode 97 features Alex Gorgon, who's a lawyer from Ukraine, pressed into military service, now a military hero. My gosh, Greg Gold, also a hero. He recently went to Kiev on a sensitive mission. You can read all about it, or let me read it to you at the end of the show. Greg was featured in his hometown Warren, Ohio newspaper because... He, at great risk to himself and considerable expense, went to Kiev, met with Alex, provided necessary supplies, and he did it just in early February, before Joe Biden did it. We talk about that. We talk about the Alex Murdoch case as well. We're both lawyers. Similarly trained as a lawyer was Vladimir Putin. What a horrible person. Vladimir Zelensky, what a great person. You know what side I'm on. A guy who's not a lawyer, thank God, Tucker Carlson. He's a recurring bad guy on this show. Episode 137 featuring Debbie Ortega and my buddy Greg Gold after the break in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. At the end, you'll hear from the troubadour, Dave Gunders, with his song, Revelation Town. It's a beauty, and what a great discussion I have with him as well. Enjoy. It's hot in here. Did that toaster catch on fire? It wasn't that. You choked on that bite of burnt bagel. Why is everything all red? The heat is unbearable. Where am I? Excuse me, your dishonor. May I step in on behalf of my client? Mr. Silverman, proceed. Tell me one redeeming good thing your client did. He was a faithful listener to my radio show. Not good enough. He had decency and compassion for his family. He did end-of-life planning with Michael Bailey. The Michael Bailey? That is kind to your loved ones. That is smart and way too decent for this place. Your client can go. And what about me, your despicableness? Why should I? Michael Bailey is my lawyer, too. Go on, then. Get out of here. (laughs) Now, part of that was serious, and part of that was fictional. But you will die someday, and if you don't make a legal plan, the government will make one for you. Call my lawyer, Michael Bailey. His rates are reasonable, and he can meet with you and your spouse wherever you want, and on weekends and evenings. 720-394-6887 or online at MBLaw. 
LLC.com. Now back to the Greg Silverman Show. Hey, being a lawyer is a matter of judgment. You have to know the law, the facts, but good judgment is essential. If you don't understand how Donald Trump is culpable for the crimes committed in his name, then I question your judgment. I have the good judgment to question Donald Trump. If you want a lawyer like that, instead of a knucklehead who believes in the MAGA propaganda, call Craig. 303-734-7156, 303-734-7156. I am Craig, Craig Silverman, a voice for victims. Welcome to Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. It's Craig Gold. Greg Gold, American hero, Craig Gold. Amen, Craig. Good hearing from you. How are you? I am okay, but a little sad that we have the uh, anniversary of Putin's illegal invasion of Ukraine, and it's not over yet. So I'm a little pissed off about that. How about you? Well, you think of what Ukraine has done to be able to beat back the world's second greatest army in the last year and you you have to be proud to understand that, that their morale is high the material that they've gotten from the united states is is spectacular and they're appreciative and grateful for it i mean if there's anything the, the most light best thing that was said about it was dave Chappelle, who said like who can believe the ukrainians like they beat back the russians with things they had in their kitchen in the first two weeks. I mean, they didn't have anything much more. And the Russians went running and they had them surrounded. So I'm, I'm a, I, we're going down to a vigil right now for the one-year anniversary, but Ukraine is going to win and the world's going to win and be victorious. I just believe in that so much. So I, uh, I keep, it, keep at it. I just worry because I salute Joe Biden. He went where you have gone. And in my introduction and in that amazing article in the Warren newspaper, everybody everybody will know of your heroism, Greg Gold. But Joe Biden followed your footsteps to Kiev. And he said, uh, we're with you as long as it takes. But shouldn't he have said whatever it takes? Every single thing Biden has played, he's played it very, very well. Perfect, almost perfect. I mean, America is is leading leading the way on this, and Biden is leading the way. And so, yeah, there's there's more we should do. F-16s, airplanes. It didn't accelerate into World War III in Korea. It was uh, no one got more upset in Vietnam because there's airplanes. Give them the tools. He, my my colleague and friend Alex over there, who's as you know, has been on the show. Is a is a is the lawyer just says lend lease, give it to us. We will finish the job. I mean, it just it rings of World War II and rings of, Tur- of, of Churchill uh, of, of his pronouncements. Um, uh, I I, uh, I came, came upon a, a revelation when I was over there. Like, what really makes me want to go back on this? What go back to Ukraine again and again and to do as much as I can. And it's that opening scene in Patton. Remember that, Craig? 
Remember the opening speech? Um, not as well as you. Go ahead. Oh God, I, I, I do appreciate. You got to make I, the, uh, the them die for their country. I remember that. Yes, but it also has that scene for where it says when your grandkids are sitting on your lap. 20 years from now, and they ask you, what did you do in the great Russian-Ukraine invasion and war? You won't have to tell them I was shoveling shit in Louisiana. You could say you did something about it. And our country is, and in the smallest part, talking about it. It makes as much a difference for the Ukrainians. And that's what Biden did, showing up. And I know the exact route that Biden took. I know, I know, I know where he crossed the airbase that he landed. I've driven by many times, and then he, he went right through the Med- Medica border and then took the train right from there. I've I've driven to Kiev, but I've never taken the train. Holy cow, Greg Gold! You just used the word revelation, and the song for our show this week is Revelation Town, and I want to hear about Kiev because I found out. My maternal great-grandmother was married in Kiev. What is that city like? You were just there. Tell everybody why it's worth saving. Well, it's, it's, it's jaw-droppingly beautiful. The people are fantastic. And you sit there and say, this is Denver. Like, when you look at the, the size of it, it's about 3 million people. It's, uh, it's got, got a you know, gorgeous river running through it. And it's a beautiful city. And when you sit there and think they, they literally believed one year ago that everyone was just going to come in, like going to come in and say, thank you, Russia. Thank you for taking over our freedom. Everything that we've did, we, we've given up in our lives, our own land. We've been able to establish our own country that it was just all going to be surrendered. And when you start looking at the battlefields that were around Kiev in a year, it's, it's like, it would be like me and you saying, okay, let's get a gun and go to Highlands Ranch. I mean, it's right, there's eight miles out. Buka's 10, 15 miles out. And the geography, when you stare at it on a Google map, you start driving around, you understand how close, frankly, close Russia was to, to doing that. I asked my friend Alex, like, how do they do it? And you know, your listeners probably may know more about this than I do, but I guess they, they surrounded them. They had them surrounded. They didn't have supply lines. And that's when Russia made its, uh, quote, strategic you know, departure from, from Kiev. And uh, Kiev, Kiev's vibrant, beautiful, has, frankly, more electricity than Lviv. And uh, everyone there is working three jobs. I'll tell you that, too. Everyone there is working towards the war, working whatever they can do to keep the economy doing, and then taking care of their families. And how do you see this geopolitically? You are such a student of World War II, but back then, I guess China was a factor, but wow, what's going to happen there? Yeah, I don't think it's a secret anymore that, uh, that China is uh, injected itself, quietly injected itself, uh, looking for a way to be able to capitalize off of this. And uh, Iran as well. It's the, the, the lines are being drawn. I, I see Russia, I see China, I see Iran, and I see North Korea. And, and it's not just me, it's the people on the ground there too. And I see Marjorie Taylor Greene. I see Lauren Boebert. I see Donald Trump. And I see an election coming up where he's probably the nominee. Do the Ukrainians understand what's going on politically and how it can affect their country, their world, their lives? In a word, yes. They get it. They get it. 
they get it. And 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 I have it have every time that conversation comes up, I talk about the unification and, and that we have on this. Yeah, there are dissenting voices, and perhaps they could grow. I understand that, but still, America's united on this as about any other geopolitical or national issue that we have. And I just think it's better to keep talking about what unites us in this than what divides us in this. Absolutely. There are Republican heroes. I never thought I'd say it, but I even wrote about it. Mitch McConnell wrote a uh, war, a Ukraine tie at the State of the Union, and he is rock solid in his support for Zelensky in Ukraine. And so are a lot of other Republicans. But I'll tell you one conservative who has a power platform and his name is Tucker Carlson. And in this country, it's a measure of our media's total corruption that no one ever asks anyone in the Biden administration what the United States is hoping to accomplish in Ukraine. As long as it takes to do what exactly? Now, the original answer was, well, to push Russia back to where it was a year ago before it invaded Ukraine. And that seemed like a reasonable and measurable objective. The public seemed behind that. Then without fanfare or even official notice, the goal changed and became taking the Russian port of Crimea just because it would be nice to have that. Always wanted it. Want to take it now. Then the goal became overthrowing Putin and putting American tanks in Red Square because, sure, we could manage Russia once we overthrow the dictator. We're good at that. We did it in Iraq. We did it in Libya. Now the objective appears to be winning World War III against both Russia and China, a war that would, by definition, include the use of nuclear weapons and the deaths by incineration of hundreds of millions of people. I don't spend a lot of time listening or focusing on, on Mr. Carlson, but I understand people do, and I don't understand it. I don't understand it. Growing up, as you know, I was a Reagan Republican, and growing up in the Republican Party and understanding that this is a honor, you know, dictatorship, communist, not our friends. This, and we've got, what do we say? I think maybe up four percent of our military budget that we're dedicated, able to equalize and to be able to bring back freedom to to Ukraine and in the in the world. This is important for the world. America's not involved in the in other wars that are going on. It, this is in our interest. We're not involved in this. It's sad. It's terrible. There's the Ethiopian civil war, other things that we're involved in this because it's helpful to us if you want to look at it in a purely selfish manner. But I, I don't. I think it's better better for the world and better for, for, for everyone involved if Ukraine prevails in this. Um, I, you know, I met over there, Craig, and, I, and I, I'm going to tell you, I saw on television last night on CNN, there was in it's, 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 there's an article called Trapped in the Trenches in the New Yorker. A, a, a guy who fought, who was about 35 years old, he fought in Iraq, fought in Afghanistan. He was an eight-year Marine. And he... And he was on CNN last night, Craig. It's a great article. I will link it. I'll try to find that CNN link, too. Keep going. Tell everybody how you met Doc. There's a picture of you and Doc. Can I put it on Twitter? Yeah, we'll talk about that. Yes. Met met Doc because he's a foreign legion fighter. The day the war started... He is working for Google, went to Columbia University. He's got two degrees from Columbia, working eight years for Google, walked down to the, the Ukraine embassy, knocked on the door and says, I, I want to go fight. And, and, and not, you know, a lot of people fight for different reasons. They're sad in their lives. They're, they're, 
they are militaristically inclined. He said, this is absolutely wrong. They're defending their land, and I'm not going to sit back and work at Google and work behind this desk. I'm going to go out and fight. And he's uh, the article that you're talking about in the New Yorker is, is captivating. I could not believe it, but I saw him on, on television last night being interviewed, and they have one under the same name, Doc. Um, you know, it seemed to me, Greg, and I know you have to go, but we've both been watching this Alex Murdoch trial out of South Carolina and shame on him, he's a lawyer, and I believe he killed his son and his wife when he got exposed for all of his thievery. He had a reputation to protect. They were going to turn on him. He betrayed people all the time. It's kind of like Putin, right? He yep. also has stolen from the people he's supposed to love. He's caught, and rather than admit it, he's going to get violent, and he's going to kill his enemies. And it's an age-old tale, and he took to the broadcast airwaves in Russia, and he came up with one lie after another, just like Murdoch, in my opinion. Do you see the parallels? I mean— uh, I do, and, the, and and I watched that testimony uh, all day all day today, and the, Murdoch is smooth, and, and Putin is smooth, whether yes. we like it or not. And he's a and lawyer, smooth. too. He went to Leningrad. He has a law degree. Keep going. I didn't recognize that, but they the they're both they're both smooth. They're both persuasive. They both have extraordinarily uh, extraordinary ability to be calm and thoughtful and reflective and and and, and, and hence be persuasive. I'm not I'm not, right. not a fan of either one of them, but they, they're his testimony today was uh, I'd, I'd take a witness like that any day. He was good. He was real right, good. and all he needs to do <laughs> is get one or two, and like and a Marjorie Taylor Greene or a Lauren Boebert type. That's yeah. look, looking for the hung jury. Not the, Marjorie and Lauren are not going to hang us. We pray. Well, let's end it on a positive note in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge because there's another guy with a law degree who's involved in this besides you, and that's uh, Volodymyr Zelensky. Did you know he's got a law degree as well? And then he became a comedian and a producer. And what do you think of Zelensky? Uh, I mean, are we witnessing Churchill? You spent time in the United Kingdom working over there studying this stuff. Are we witnessing the reincarnation of Churchill maybe even better? You, you can't ask for anything more in a leader. And I was you, nothing, nothing you can ask for more in a leader. The, what he has done to rally his country, what he has done to rally the world, and then to continue to put himself in harm's way without regard to his own personal safety to do whatever he can. He, he seemed, he's a serious man to be taken seriously. I watched the speech that he gave with my daughter to, to our uh, House of Representatives in the Senate, the joint session of Congress, and, and he's back on the front line right again, just like all the Ukrainian men that I know, and a number of the women too. You know, we just had we had about fifteen um, uh, Ukrainian kids whose fathers and mothers, some of their mothers, were also killed in the war, and they are here in Denver for the last two weeks. I'll give my shout out to the the best nonprofit for Ukraine, which is the Ukraine Aid Fund out of Denver, where we give absolutely every single thing to the Ukrainian uh, people. In, Whatever they order, we get it and bring it over to them, whether it's drones, whether it's cars, whether it's 
first aid equipment. We get it all over, the, and you can pick which one you want, what sword you want to get it to, and we make sure it's over there. That's who I'm joining right now at the Capitol for this uh, vigil that we're going to have tonight. And uh, I, uh, it's going to be a little cold, but we're going to be all right. God bless you, Greg Gold, for all you have done. I will tell your story. I will put that in the show notes. I'll also Thank put you. the Ukraine aid fund in there for people who want to get involved. Thank you for getting involved. You are another good representation of lawyers in the world. God knows we have enough bad examples. God bless you for what you're doing. And how do you say it? Glory, Ukraine? Slava, Ukraine. Slava, Ukraine. There we go. Take care, my friend. Over and out. Thank you. Bye. Michael Bailey, a friend, a lawyer, a sponsor. Tell everybody how you bring peace of mind to their life. So by setting up your estate plan, you know what's going to happen to your stuff when you die. You know where it's going to go, you know who's going to get it. We've got everything in place so we're not running to a court to try to get guardianship and conservatorship as quickly as possible. But then it's an orderly proceeding of things. So, you know, there's already enough chaos with the medical emergency, but the legal part of it and who can make decisions is all outlined. It's all set up. So there's, it's like the the smooth transition of power. That's cool because you can avoid so many problems by having a medical power of attorney and discussing it with a smart guy like Michael Bailey, because who should have this? It's probably somebody close. Who do you trust most among your children to make that call? These are the hard and good questions that you ask every day, right, Michael? Right. And if you ask them beforehand, when you're not in the middle of a crisis, then when a crisis hits, we're not trying to do crisis management and medical emergency and everything else. We're going, okay, we've got a smooth transition of power here. We've got a smooth who's in charge, and we can have that all flow so that we can focus on the care. There are so many things in life that you can fill out a form and save yourself money, save yourself heartache. Some people die out of nowhere quickly, but more often you get sick, you have medical difficulties, so it all goes together. But your system works, it works beautifully. What is the best way to contact you these days? Best way, uh, you can give me a call. My phone number is 720-394-6887. And again, that's 720-394-6887. Or you can go online to LLC.com And there is a an appointment page on my website that you can use. So either way is fine. Thanks, Michael. Gosh, it's an honor to be visited by all the major mayoral candidates for the big job of mayor of Denver. Debbie Ortega certainly fits that bill, a longtime city councilwoman at large. She is dedicated to public service, and she's with us now. Debbie, thanks a lot for doing the podcast. I'm honored to be here, Craig. So, um... I don't know if we've encountered each other. I I feel like we have back in the day, the city and county building. Remember when both the prosecutors in Denver and the city council and their staff wandered those halls? Absolutely. Absolutely. You would see people walking up and down the halls in shackles. And um, yeah, there was a lot of activity in and out of that building. And now it seems so empty, right? We do still have a few courts in the building. 
I know, but the fourth floor used to be a hub of activity. It's so beautiful. Don't you love that building? I mean, if, if you win, you'll keep working there. You'll move down one floor, right? Th that's correct. I mean, how do you feel about the city and county building? I always describe it as the best building in the world for me. You know, both both that and the state capitol building are amazing public assets for this city and, and true um, historic properties that I think, um, you know, just uh, signify what a capital city should look like. Right, the history. I mean, the capital is fantastic. I haven't spent near as much time, but I think the city and county building is a New Deal project. They just don't build courthouses like that anymore, and I think it's a darn shame. Yeah, it's true. And, you know, over time, the city actually had to make sure it added air conditioning and, you know, just keep up with the uh, general upkeep of it as any historic property requires. That's funny. I was talking with Gary Jackson about that. He is a Denver County judge, just retired, longtime lawyer before that. But he remembers when we had to practice with no air conditioning. And he told me in response to what the judges wear beneath their robes, he said, Judge Lilly, I don't want to make a statement about a judge that isn't first hand. Let's just say that there wasn't a lot that Judge Lilly wore under the robes oh, when the when there was no air conditioning. Anyway, <laughs> I, th I think that's a prerogative. It could get hot there. <laughs> Debbie, tell everybody about your life. Um, you got here as fast as you could, and you had a tragedy. You had a, uh, a father who you worshipped who passed away in a mining accident. That had to be a trauma. Has that kind of defined your life? Yeah, it really did. Um, so basically, I was five years old when my dad was killed in a mining accident. But, you know, before that, um, he had a lot of influence in my life around the issue of, um, you know, giving back to your community. He was the person that would round up um, money and groceries from his colleagues when another miner was injured on the job. And I would go with him oftentimes to deliver the food and the, and the money to help them cover their, their bills until they were able to get back to work. And then, um, you know, like I said, he, he died when I was five years old. My mom had five children under eight to raise, uh, under the age of eight. Um, and we moved here when I was in the seventh grade. And um, my mom, when, when we moved here, she volunteered a lot of her time in um, food banks. And oftentimes, much of that food ended up on, on our table. But, you know, with my dad, um, a lot of those same people that he helped came back to help my family, you know, after, after he had passed. And that's what's in northern New Mexico, Raton, am I right? Correct. Yeah, so I was in the seventh grade when I moved here. I've been here my entire adult life. I went to Denver Public Schools. Um, I have a daughter that I raised who also went to Denver Public Schools. And I have grandkids who have been through the same school system. Uh, three of those went on to uh, serve in the military. My daughter is a major in the sheriff's department. So I think that uh, commitment to service started with my parents, and it's been 
uh, sort of channeled through to the rest of, to my daughter and to my grandchildren. And so I'm really, really blessed uh, to see their contributions to our community as well. How old are your children and grandchildren now? My daughter is, uh, I believe she's 43. And I have my oldest granddaughter, I believe is 26 now. She married a gentleman um, right out of high school and he served in the army. They live here in uh, northern Colorado and they've got three children. So I'm a great grandmother. Um, I'm very proud of that. I love my grandkids. But um, also have uh, a grandson and two granddaughters. Um, that two, The two older ones served in the Navy. Both are now out. One uh, just started in the sheriff's department in the academy class. And the other one um, who served her four years in Japan is now going to Metro and getting her bachelor's degree. And, um, you know, they wanted to go to college but didn't want to be stuck with college debt and were successful um, being able to achieve their goals and the military's helping cover their costs. My youngest granddaughter is still in. She's in the Air Force, and she is at Scott Air Force Base. Um, she's actually here in Denver right now, and I'm looking forward to seeing her before she goes back on Saturday. Wow, that's a lot of military. I've been trying to learn what I could about you. And to me, like most people, you probably have evolved. Didn't you start out working for Sal Carpio, who was That's on correct. city council? And what years was that? Um, that was in 1979. But my first political job was actually working for George Brown when he was our lieutenant governor with uh who is Dick Lamb's uh, lieutenant governor. Okay, then let's go back. Let's not skip anything, because <laughs> I want to hear about West High, because my father okay. went to West High. My mama went to East. I'm a okay. GW guy, but did Goodness. you live near West High? Did you walk to school? Um, you know, there were a few times I did. I had a friend who, who drove. She had a 1939 Chevy that her dad owned and would let her drive it to school. And she would come and pick me up and, and drive me to school. She um, was one of my best friends. And uh, she and I still walk Sloan's Lake on a regular basis. Whereabouts were you living then? I lived off at 10th and Irving in the Villa Park neighborhood. It's kind of the old west side where my yeah, ancestors yeah. come from. My dad grew up 1,400 block of equipment, and they had a choice whether to go to west or to north. My uncle went to north. Uh, did you have school choice back then, or was it neighborhood schools, right? They were neighborhood schools, what yeah. Year did, what year did you graduate from west? In 73. A year ahead of me. Yeah. Do you remember a basketball player? Then I think his name was Pepper Bartlett. Boy, that or name something is... like that. He was really good. He got kicked off the team, which I was glad because I couldn't really cover him, even though we had a better team. Anyway, <laughs> I'm just thinking Joe Bigley. I think he was a pitcher for West. I go back to sports, stuff like that. But what did you do after West High, graduating in 1973? <laughs> that was an So you went through. Let's back up. You went through Denver Public Schools during desegregation, just like me, right? Yes, yes. That was quite. Did did West feel the fallout from that, or not so much? I, you know, I got to West right after they had the riots there, um, so I I'm not um, sure how much that 
impacted the school, you know, before me, but a lot of the kids that went to school there were from neighborhoods um, that feed, that fed into, um, you know, the school from, from this quadrant of, of town. You think you had riots? We had the big one at GW. I was in ninth grade at Hill Junior High, but it scared the crap out of me because my brother was at GW. And I've since done broadcasts about it, but it shut down the school for two weeks. Did you have one at West High, too? There was one at West High, but it was right before I got there. Mm. My uh, first year of high school was actually at Lincoln High School because we lived in southwest Denver. And then when my family moved to 10th and Irving, that's when I went to, um, to West High School. So there you were on, right, on the west side, I think it was different, and the crusade for justice was going on, and I think most of our disputes at GW were involving whites, blacks, Jewish people, I mean, that was our mix, not so much Hispanic, I think on the west side, Kennedy, west, north, uh, there was the crusade for justice. There was the bombing of the buses. Yes. I, I mean, were you aware of it or were you like me, kind of a kid saying, whoa, this is tumultuous? Some of the crusade for justice stuff going on. Um, oftentimes you'd have things going on in uh, Columbus, La Raza Park. Um, it's now known as La Raza Park. It finally got changed. Um, but yeah, I mean, a lot of that spilled over into the neighborhoods. I remember there was actually an incident that happened at Our Lady of Guadalupe Church, and um, the pastor and uh, people had to kind of take cover because there were some folks that came into the church. That was many years ago when Sal was actually on the city council. Gosh, what a history Denver has, and you and I lived through it as kids. I think that helps us understand the history of this city. And then you graduate West High, and not long thereafter, you're working in the city and county building. But that's why you like the state capitol, because you also worked for uh, lieutenant governor. That's fascinating. Tell us, how do do you go from graduating West High to getting involved in the top tier of government? I was actually working part-time at DU Law School while I was going to business school. Um, I worked for the clinical education program. And um, while I was working there, Dick Lamb was running for for governor. And when he got elected, um, I worked with a woman in the office who informed me about a position that was open in that office. And while I worked there... um, you remember Howard Gelt? Of Howard course. Was one of the professors. Uh, Dick Lamb was one of the professors. And I actually did a project with some of the law students that did a, a research about prescription drugs and found that people were paying um, higher prices for name brands when the products had the exact same ingredients. And they released that report to let people know uh, that they could get prescription drugs at much, much cheaper. So I I was the one who had to type up that report for them. (laughs) How cool is that? Is this back when DU was right next to the city and county building off of 14th? No, it was even before that. They used to be right downtown on the 16th Street Mall. Now you're going a little before my time downtown. Where were they? There was a um, jewelry store right next to it. 
I can't even think of the name of it. It sold a lot of Native American jewelry and turquoise. and. Um, so, so on that government end of downtown? Yes, yes. Uh, near the Petroleum yeah. Club or something like that? Yeah, I'm at the far south end of, of downtown, of the 16th Gosh, Street Mall. That's fascinating. Probably where the RTD turnaround station is now, at, in that general area. See, I didn't get down there till about 1980. Yeah. Right. I walked in as an intern in Dale Tooley's DA's office, June 1, 1980, along with Bill Ritter, Karen Steinhauser, who's gone on to be a professor yes. at DU, and, uh, I and Velveeta Golightly, who became an official in the Obama administration, Michael Cohen, another cool guy. We all came down from yeah. CU Boulder, and we worked in 924 West Colfax, which became the Hispanic Heritage Building. Do you remember when that was the DA's office, the old West Side Court Building? I remember that well, and I worked with uh, National Image to get that building um, to be designated as the Hispanic Heritage Building. And um, there's a lot of history on that property because Linda Alvarado was the one who put up the million-dollar line of credit to do the renovation on that building, and that was going to be the home for National Image as well as other Hispanic organizations. And they they had an obligation to pay the debt back on that um, loan, and unfortunately, were not able to cover those costs. So Linda ended up owning that property. I know what a property it is. You always figure an Edsel is going to pull up in front of it. But what we would do, and when I walked in June one, 1980, one of the senior deputies already was Beth McCann, who's now the Denver DA. In any event, Beth ended up, uh, you know, um, working there for a while, then state legislature. She had other jobs in the city. But uh, the cool thing about that location, every afternoon you could sit on the steps and watch traffic accidents occur at Spear and Colfax because it's so darn busy. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. So so after that job, um, I, I was working for George Brown and – learned about a position that was open in Floyd Haskell's office. So I applied for that and ended up working for Floyd up until the time that he lost his election. And that's when he was uh, starting to date Nina Totenberg, if you remember that. No, I forgot about that. See, Nina Totenberg, who is the legal correspondent for NPR, right? Yeah, yes. Um, but he he lost his election. It may be because he was in love. I'm not sure why. <laughs> well, that's a good reason to go down. Yes. But, um, you know, when you work for an elected official, you work at, at their, you know. Back in call. Yeah. When they lose office, then you lose your job. I mean, oh, no. You know, these are um, political appointments. Right. And so that's, that's when I was um, – trying to figure out what I was going to do next. And I learned about a position open with Sal Carpio. And that's how I ended up, um, you know, working for the city, spent eight years with him. And that's when he decided not to run for election. And I ran for his seat and served in that same seat for 16 years and until term limits went into effect. And that's when Kathy Reynolds and a whole host of people who had many, many years um, of experience more than I did 
where we all left at the same time and a lot of institutional knowledge about the city walked out the door at the same time. I know. So tell everybody where you went and how you came back. So I went to the uh, Department of Human Services and uh, was the first director of the Denver Road Home Program. It was the homeless commission that was focused on addressing homelessness in Denver. I did that for about seven years. I worked with all of the um, large shelter providers, most of whom were in my previous district, and I had a strong working relationship with them. And we put together this plan that was focused on helping get people to work, bringing more street outreach workers to the table, um, closing the gap on shelters by uh, creating some additional shelters that didn't exist. For example, we never had a woman's shelter. There was a part-time um, facility that was available in the building of a nonprofit that was only available to women during the winter. And in the summertime, they used their building for, you know, summer fix-up work on, on people's homes. And so the women were displaced during that time. And we felt the need to find a permanent location. And they've been in, um, you know, the west side of town where their property was used and assembled with another uh, developer that was that included putting that building their their shelter into a building that had housing and it made housing available for a number of the women that came through the shelter system. So, who, you know, who, that, who appointed you to that position? Um, so I was hired by uh, Roxanne White, who was the manager of human services. So it wasn't, you know, like a and a political appointment from Hickenlooper as one of his 52 appointments that the mayor gets. It was, um, you know, just to hire to try to figure out how to solve some of the homeless issues that were going on in the city at that time. How many years total have you been a councilwoman? Oh, goodness. I think it'll be 43 years. Oh, as a council person, it'll yes. be 28. I'll be the only one that will match Kathy Reynolds' record. Wow. Yeah. Gosh, I so, was, uh, I knew Polly Flobeck, right? And wasn't she an yeah. aide to Paul Swalm and kind yeah, of uh, yeah. came into power like you did, right? Paid their dues. So my district, District 9, is the only one that had a councilman that was followed by a council aide who then had another council aide follow in the same footsteps. So after me, it was Judy Montero. So Judy stepped into the same uh, position after I left. She worked for me for... I can't remember about 11 years of, of my 16 years when I was in that district. And I'm friends with Frank Scheidler. We worked together in the Denver DA's office, and his father, Bill Scheidler, was the next-door neighbor councilman or what? Yes, he was uh, the councilman of District 1, Northwest Quadrant of the city, and I was on the council at the same time Bill was on the council, but he also served with Sal. That's the district that... Uh, Larry Perry had. And if you remember when Larry Perry was there, that's when city council members used to um, be able to have a badge. And he, for some reason, had a police radio in his car and he would chase police calls. <laughs> and that's why council members had their badges taken away because Larry Perry would get in the middle of police calls where he really didn't need to be. <laughs> 
Like, yeah, I could go off on stories of prosecutors <laughs> I've known, but we won't digress. But the cool thing is you've seen so many people come and go through the years. Yes. Who, who are the best council people that you've worked with? And let's go for mayor. You're running for mayor. Who would be a role model? Who was the best mayor you've seen yeah. in your decades in Denver? So of the council people, you know, Kathy Reynolds is one that stands out. Um, I think Ramona Martinez is another one that, uh, you know, just did amazing work in her district as the council person for um, her district. I, I mean, I remember Sam. She worked for Sam Sandoz. Sam and Sal really were the epitome of grassroots uh, servant leaders. And, you know, Ramona followed in Sam's footsteps and I followed in Sal's footsteps and they were, you know, just incredible mentors that helped really um, understand the um, just the importance of being a servant leader. And I, I really don't consider myself a career politician, as some people try to refer to me. I really consider myself having been a true public servant to the people because that's what I've dedicated my adult life to is just trying to make a difference for my community. Denver is so diverse. There are lots of neighborhoods. When I think of Debbie Ortega, I think West Side. I think West High School and maybe some communities, what's it called, Sunnyside or right. even Sloan. It's, like, it's, it's yeah. different than Wilshire or Southmore in Southeast Denver, but you really aren't pigeonholed into just one area. You've been a councilwoman at large, that means right. you've been elected citywide. How well do you know the whole city? Do you, do you feel like you could beat any of your competitors on a Denver test? I do. I mean, that's why I'm in this race. If I didn't think I could do it, I wouldn't have run. Um, I have had constant presence across this city since I got elected at large in 2011. And I routinely attend neighborhood association meetings, house district meetings of the Democratic Party, and um, people know who I am. They know that when they call my office and they have a problem, they're going to get follow-up. And we may not always be able to get the right answer that they're looking for, but we will do our darndest to try. And um, as the mayor, I will be in a position where I can make things happen. I mean, we're I was dealing with a neighborhood with an issue at Broadway and I-25 where the city was working with CDOT to do some major changes. This is on a route from Ohio that takes you from the West Wash Park neighborhood right across Lincoln and Broadway to the RTD uh, train stop. And they want people to walk one block to the north and then, you know, go literally it's three blocks out of their way. By the time you go one block to the north and then another block to the east and then back over to the train stop. And the neighbors were saying, this is ridiculous. People are still going to cross at Ohio. And you're adding a lot more traffic to this area. So this is an example of something that I would just, you know, make sure that we're listening to the neighborhood. It's also part of why I put on the ballot creating the Department of Transportation and Infrastructure Advisory Board, similar to what we have with the Parks and Recreation Advisory Board, so that we have citizen leaders being able to weigh in on so many issues that, 
that agency, which has grown by leaps and bounds, um, can can make sure they've got some touch points with community. And then it's also a vehicle that other neighborhoods can use to advocate and make sure that their concerns in their community are being addressed as part of the work that agency does. So, um, you know, I, I'm using that as an example of where... And I understand. I like it, too, because I ride my bike through that intersection. It's a good... It's the hub where you can catch the E-line when I ride my bike. I do old man biking. I ride downtown, and then I take the light rail back. And yep. often I, I go to that Broadway station, and it is a little confusing. I'm getting yes. the impression that when you worked at DU... And what, were you going to Barnes Business School at the time? Correct. You're, and so you were kind of doing this work, and then people realized you could do more than just type things up. You could help them with policy and getting everything done. And when people called Debbie Ortega, she'd call them back. And is that the way you view yourself as somebody who gets things done? You don't really need a boss. You can be the boss because you can get things done. Yeah, I really believe that um, the mayor's position really requires somebody that is an executor that can make things happen. And I believe that I've been doing that the whole time that I've been in public office. I think, you know, I'm also on the board of a nonprofit housing development group called Del Norte. And Del Norte has been building homes in the city. And the very first project, I don't know if you remember this, Craig, but um, the little park across the street from North High School, now known as Viking Park, was an area that Sal Carpio um, basically moved to turn into a park because it had so many different kinds of zoning that had incompatible uses. And he was successful in beautifying the entrance into North Denver with that park. And there were people not very happy with him about um, doing that. But, you know, this is where um, you use your influence where you can to make a difference. And in this case, um, several of those homes, Del Norte actually moved from Federal Boulevard to 38th and Zunai. And that was the very first project that Del Norte did. And since then, they now own just a little under a thousand units around the city um, working to address the needs of low-income families in our city. Well, let's talk about housing, because I have watched both debates, and we'll talk about the fairness of the debates from your perspective. But I saw in the Nine News debate, there was a show of hands. Who believes that the government, Denver specifically, has a responsibility to house unhoused residents? And I think everybody's hand went up, including yours, but for Chris Hansen. And so tell me, do you think the government does have an obligation to house people? So I think we we have pots of resources that come to our city to do some of those very things. We get emergency solutions grants from HUD to deal with our unhoused community and work with very many of our service providers. We also get HUD funding for housing and in the last few years, our housing office has used most of those monies for the zero to 30% of the area median population. Um, historically, those dollars have been used to support the missing middle, which are 
you know, dollars that go to provide housing for um, working families that make just a little bit too much don't qualify for that low income. Now, now, now where, did the, where does this money come from? This federal money, grant money? It's federal money from HUD. And, and, as you and know, how, how does the city acquire it? So it's, it's a uh, formula process where uh, the dollars come automatically to the city. Uh, we also can access from time to time state monies, but typically that's through an application process. So is it, is it based a, on population with little cities like yeah. Glendale or Morrison get a tinier yeah. amount? Yes, that is correct. I, I don't know that every city gets dollars. Some of the cities um, go through their county process. And as you know, Denver is a city and a county, so it's probably through that county role. But it's all administered by our housing office. And but I'm, I'm just wondering, because let's say the affluent suburbs, let's say Greenwood Village, okay? I don't think they're using money to house unhoused people. Maybe I'm wrong. Correct me if I'm wrong. Okay, yeah. dude, I mean, could Denver just say, well, thanks, but no thanks? Or could they take this money and use it some other way to help people? On the housing side, I think they could choose to use it differently. Um and over time, as I said, a lot of those dollars are used to leverage other funding sources that help provide housing. And it, it's not enough in itself to just get some of those dollars. It really requires stacks of funding from different sources to be able to bring online affordable units. Um, for example, it requires uh, low-income tax credits if you're doing affordable housing, even if you're looking at anywhere from you know, 50 to 80, 90 percent of the AMI, you still need those tax subsidies to help bring them in and, and you know, commit to keep them affordable over a, a period of time that is obligated uh, by the Colorado Housing Finance Authority. But those are competitive dollars. And even though they have the 4 percent and the 9 percent funds, it's it's a statewide competitive process. And we have had, we meaning Del Norte, have had multiple um, projects where we've got to go through three and four years of applications before getting the funding because projects across the state are are also trying to tap into those dollars. So who gets to, that housing? Say, say like a 22-year-old mother of three, is, do we want to provide her housing so she can raise her kids? Is that what we are talking about? Yeah, I mean, in some cases, we're talking about um, firefighters and police officers and teachers because um, some of them are eligible for that housing because the AMI levels in our city have gone up as the cost of living in wow. our metro has increased. What a complicated subject. And, it uh, is. <laughs> and, and uh, another factor, let me just ask you directly because uh, – I think Kwame Spearman answered it. He wants to be in the more conservative lane, and Chris Hansen, too. They're going to yes. crack down on homelessness. Everybody kind of chooses a lane to run in for Denver mayor. Do you think you have a lane? What's your lane? So I think my lane is that I have been a fiscal conservative 
Um, I will always fight to protect our taxpayer dollars and look at where we can be more efficient with how we spend our dollars. As you know, I did not support the Great Hall contract when I started to take a deep dive into the contract and realized that we weren't given the financials and uh, we were expected to just vote for this thing, carte blanche. Um, it, it just didn't make sense. And you what saw happened how- there? Was that uh, just incompetence or corruption or what? We're talking about the Great Hall Project at the airport with gazillions of dollars of overruns. What happened? Yeah, I think part of it was we selected a firm that led us to believe they had the wherewithal to do the construction of this. And, um, you know, it was going to be a 34-year contract that was going to basically give this money to a company from Spain who was going to take this money and spend it, you know, out of the country. And at the end of the day, we ended up paying $200 million just to get out of the contract, which, um, you know, it, it, you know, I, I think I saw the writing on the wall at the very beginnings that it just didn't look like a good deal for Denver. And uh, at the end of the day, there were a lot of performance issues that required the city to step in and take control and complete the project as a city um, control, you know, city construction project, as opposed to having it be uh, done by a private sector entity who is going to basically collect all the money, the revenues from the concessions and keep that over the 40 year time, 43 year time frame. Well, you're old enough to remember when I ran against Bill Ritter for mayor in 1996. And before that election, Mayor Webb called me in and he wanted to know what my priorities were going to be. And I thought that was a fair question, but I think he wanted to know if I was going to pursue the allegations of corruption back then at DIA. Do you remember that? And uh, there was a grand jury, this and that. You're talking about the whole pay-to-play thing yes. that people raise questions about all yes. pretty much the concessions and some of the contracts. That's one of the yeah. times I've been in the Denver mayor's office. Interesting encounter. Mayor Webb was a powerful figure, and it just wasn't one of my priorities, and he stayed neutral in that race. But the airport's always been a source of controversy, and the mayor has a lot of power. Um, yes including at the airport. I haven't even heard the airport come up yet. There was pretty much a fiscal disaster there. It throws off so much revenue, but has it even been coming up at all in mayoral forums? You know, it has not, and, and it should be, because first of all, it is not a separate authority. It is still a city agency. Um, I think under Kim Day, oftentimes um, she would have liked it to be an authority and tried to uh, operate in that capacity. But as a person who sh- who chaired that committee, um, especially as part of that great, well, it was actually when the hotel was being built, I, I would require them to bring routine updates to city council. I actually had uh, the council president at that time who cornered me and said she was getting complaints. I was, bringing too many of the issues to committee on the airport. <laughs> and I was like, that's our job. We are, this is what the taxpayers elected us to do. It's our, our responsibility to make sure that we are 
overseeing these big construction projects and making sure that, you know, we're, we're spending this money wisely. And we were often reminded that this was not taxpayer money, but it was taxpayer money that paid to build that airport and all of that, you know, those are user fees. Um, the cost per employment, you know, comes from the airlines uh, adding that extra fee onto a, a, a ticket. And everybody in our city who flies in and out of the airport, they're they're part of paying those fees. So yeah, our our airport has um, continued to be an amazing economic generator for our city. But at the same time, I think the accountability factor is really important. And it's one of those issues that the mayor's office has to have uh, tight, tight reins over. It's been an income generator for me, too, because I had that lawsuit when the United Airlines pilot got mishandled by Denver police out there at the hotel on an allegation that he was naked in the window, which is Oh, my God, somebody's naked in their room. So I want to thank you for building that hotel, Debbie Ortega. And maybe there should be some tinting on those windows. But that brings us around to the Denver police. And some are good, some are bad, just like any profession. But it's kind of, are we getting more bad than good, more good than bad? How are the police doing? You've been around a long time, so have I. I've always said if they're not a little disgruntled over there, it's not normal. It would be weird if they were all happy, but it just seems a little worse. It seems a little sadder time to be a Denver cop than in my lifetime. Do you feel that? So I think this there, there are a couple things here that are important to share. First of all, I think um, ongoing training and the consistency of the training is really important. And I didn't know this until I had sat down with the previous president of the Police Protective Association several years ago to learn that there were three different waves of people who had been hired, that each wave was trained under different uh, methodologies of how to address, um, you know, trying to contain a situation. Some were trained under, you know, that use of force. Others were trained under a newer model. And then the, the latest group that came in were trained under yet more updated, um, you know, and now we have the tasers and all of that stuff. But what had not happened was to go back and make sure that those first two waves all had the same updated training so that, you know, they think they're doing the right thing because that's how they were trained to do their job. And, and that was something that really kind of opened my eyes, not realizing that we hadn't gone back and done the updated training. And I know under Chief Pazin, that was one of the things he was working towards. And I'd have to go back and see if we have now, you know, done that updated training for, for everyone that meets the, you know, the most up-to-date um, methodologies and uh, the best practices and I think that ongoing training is really critical and important. And as you know, after the George Floyd um, killing that we saw these protests in cities all across the country and um, 
a lot of officers um, feel like they're not appreciated. And a lot of people no longer see this as um, a kind of job that they want to take on. And as you know, our state legislature um, made some changes to qualified immunity in, in this state. And there are some people that feel like that um, has put them at greater risk. And, you know, some of them feel like they, they can't do their job in the same way. But at the same time, I think the vast majority of the people who come to work for this city as police officers and as sheriffs do this job because of their commitment to the city. And they are not um, coming in with the intention of harming someone. Um, and for those who do, I know they make it difficult for everybody else. I have a grandson-in-law who is a police officer up north in, in Colorado. And, you know, his comment was nobody dislikes a police officer more who, who doesn't follow the rules and who thinks they could do whatever they want to do in the job more than another police officer, because then all the rules change for everybody because of that one person. And, and I think um, that the vast, like I said, the vast majority of them are committed to doing this job because they, they want to make a difference for the community as well. Has that changed your perspective, having a family member be on a police force? Or do you, you know, I was talking, I just, I was out of school, I was speaking with Chief Pays, and he was a guest not that long ago on my show, and I asked him about the mayor's race, and he had good things to say about you, and he said that maybe you've changed over the course of decades when it comes to law enforcement, because you've seen things, you've gotten older, and now I hear family members in the military, in policing, what does that do to your perspective? Has it changed? And before you answer that, just George Floyd, I've been around too. But that surprised me that those three officers would let that happen right in front of them. And then you saw the Memphis situation, yeah. Tyree Nichols beat to death. And so what's going on with policing these days? Yeah, I, I don't I don't get that. And I don't uh, support those actions by any means. Um you know, when I served on the city council with Kathy Reynolds and others, we were part of creating the first police accountability board. And, you know, that's been now followed by, um, I can't even think of the name of the, the new vehicle that has replaced that. Office um, of Independent Monitor. Or, yeah, Liz Castle, former public defender, just got appointed, friend of mine. Yeah, but... But I think having those vehicles in place is important because the accountability side is important to ensure that for those who want to bend the rules that are not following them, there has to be that accountability. And I don't want police officers putting communities in harm's way because they're, they're hired to serve and protect our communities. And I, again, I think the vast majority of them, that's, that's what they're here for. They're committed to doing that job. I would love to see us get back to community policing like we did under Chief Whitman, um, you know, when we started that weed and seed program across the city and we had officers working 
in our neighborhoods and um, walking the beats and riding their bikes and getting to know community at the grassroots level and in neighborhoods where we had serious crime going on and a lot of youth violence happening. And that program really changed those neighborhoods. I had two of those neighborhoods in my council district and we were able to break down barriers between the police and community and, and also with our young people. Um, there were things like having the police be chaperones and working together to raise funds to take kids from these neighborhoods up to the mountains who had never, ever been in the mountains and do an overnight camping. We had the Department of Military Affairs who provided, um, you know, tents and, and sleeping cots and sleeping bags and brought up uh, what they call a water buffalo and the cooking equipment. And we raised the money for the food and uh, the transportation to get the kids up there. And it was a lifetime changing experience for a lot of those kids. Um, they realized that, you know, the world is bigger than their neighborhood that they lived in and had never got to enjoy the mountains. So I think um, I'd love to get us back to that community policing model because um, a lot of that was focused on how do we prevent problems from happening in our communities. And to get back to your question about have have I changed because I have family members um, in law enforcement, I think I've always had a good working relationship with law enforcement because at the end of the day, when something happens in, in my community, you know, in my district and now in my city, I want to know that when something is happening and I call the police, we're going to get that response. And, and I want to have that good relationship to ensure that, you know, they're going to be quick. They're, they're well-trained. They know what they're doing. And those are the reasons why I think having that good working relationship is important. How do you think Denver is doing right now? We've both been around for a while. It comes and it goes. And uh, do you think it's uh, stagnant, getting better, or going downhill right now? Are you talking about law enforcement or the I'm city? I'm just talking about the city as a whole. Yeah, we... we um our downtown needs a lot of love right now, and um, we need to do some things to keep it safe so that we don't continue to lose more businesses. I want to make sure that when conventioners come here, it's safe for people who work downtown, that it's safe and same for residents. And we can't say that right now. And I do know that our police department has been working very closely with the Downtown Denver Partnership and the mayor's office to try to address hot spots as they exist on the, on the mall. I think in general, you know, these are all solvable problems. And um, I really believe that my knowledge of how the city works, my experience in having worked on homelessness, affordable housing, which are a couple of our critical issues, same with crime, that I can step in and, and, hit the ground running and be able to assemble a solid team of professionals that are all focused on getting the job done. We're not going to work in silos. We will all work together to make these problems, you know, to resolve these problems. And that includes things like 
fixing the permit office in the city so that as we have affordable housing projects in the pipeline waiting and waiting and waiting, um, we need to get them online to address the needs of people who need affordable housing in this city, whether they're for very, very low income or for part of our working force um, population that lives in our city. And what about undocumented immigrants? Would they be eligible for the housing or is that reserved for uh, documented residents? So I think um, it depends on what kind of restrictions you have with the dollars. Um, You know, people who are undocumented buy homes. You know, they they work, they buy homes. Um, So... I'm I'm just thinking that um, if we're crowded right now and if it gets out there that you can get free housing in Denver regardless of your status, won't that just stimulate more crowding and more limited resources in Denver? So first of all, the um, if, if you're talking about the migrants who showed up here from Venezuela, um, those folks were not housed in right. Uh, housing. No, I, I, that, that was more of an emergency, right? Right, right. And and a lot of those people did not have Denver as their destination. Right. Many of them have family and friends in other parts of the U.S. And the city and the state worked together to help get them connected to those families. So they assisted them in. Um, getting to their original destination. Are you cool with what Governor Polis did, shipping them toward Chicago and New York? As long as that was their destination and where they had uh, family members they were trying to get united with, yes. I think if they were just shipped there just to move them out of our city, then I have that concern. But it's my understanding that with all the people that were working with the individuals who ended up here, they tried to identify where their destinations were that they were trying to get to. And that's that's how right. the city and the state work together to help get them to those other cities. I heard that too. I'm not sure whether it's factual. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. How do you think Governor Polis is doing running our state? I think he's doing a good job. I, I think he really tries hard to keep his finger on the pulse of what is happening across the state and has done a good job trying to address um, various needs across the state. What do you think of President Joe Biden? I like Joe Biden. Um, I don't know if he's going to run for re-election. I think he's uh, trying to assess that right now. Um, he certainly has had his hands full stepping into um, the presidential seat with a lot of a lot of challenges left behind from the previous administration. Let's talk uh, about that dude. What about Donald Trump? How do you feel about him? Um, I'm glad he's out of office and hope he stays that way. So stipulated. Absolutely. <laughs> How do you think uh, this race for mayor is going? I mean, I I walked into the Denver DA's office and my boss was running for mayor. So I've seen a lot of these come and go, but nothing like this. Have you? No, I think this Fair Election Fund of Public Financing um, attracted a lot of people that wanted to run. And as you know, Craig, each time there is an open seat, a lot of people want to do this job. 
I don't think most people have a clue what the job really entails. Um, and, and this is not by any means a glamorous job. This is a hard job to do. And I know what I'm getting into. I'm not sure a lot of people who are looking at this really understand that uh, the rubber meets the road at the local level of government. And people have expectations that their mayor and their city council are going to get things done for them. Who are you aiming this at? Anybody in particular? No, not in particular. It's going to be Kelly Bruff. Uh, Kelly, you would agree Kelly Bruff knows how the city works. Yeah, I think Kelly um, has a better understanding than any of the others. Um, It's a different city today than it was, you know, almost 15 years ago when she served under Mayor Hickenlooper. You know, I was there at the same time working on the homeless program, implementing that that whole project for. um, Is she in your lane, Kelly Brough? Because I'm thinking if she won, if you won, you'd be the first female mayor of Denver. That's quite an accomplishment. And you both have that experience within the city. I mean, how would you distinguish yourself from her? I have a lot of respect for Kelly. I worked with her when she was a staff member for the city council as one of our legislative staff members under uh, John Bennett, who was the director um, who oversaw our staff at that time. And um, I think she's got some great skills. Um, I think what separates me from her is I've been in the trenches dealing with the issues that are challenging our city today. And I've had that citywide presence. I've been elected citywide three times. And I think I know the issues with a much more in-depth, much more in-depth knowledge with different solutions of how to solve them. I don't think anybody can match your city experience plus your electoral success. Chris Hansen has won a state Senate seat. He's an engineer by training, and he's taken a lot of heat. Uh, People said that his opening TV ad is racist. Do you think it is? You know, I I just saw it for the first time. I had not seen his ad to even respond to it. Um, And for the audience, it starts out with some... uh, It appears homeless people committing crimes, somebody taking something off a wall. And uh, obviously, some of them are members of, uh, are people of color. I couldn't tell for sure that they all were, but the allegation is that he starts his ad by portraying uh, people of color as being homeless and criminal, and that that's racist. Do you agree? You know, I I don't want to take a, a particular position on what, what an ad is or isn't. Um, I think, you know, oftentimes you have um, political pundits who help you put these things together and, you know, you make the ultimate decision on whether or not something has a green light or not to move forward. And um, I will, I, in my own case, I will make sure that anything we put out there um, reflects you know, my values. And I I really think Chris is a good guy. And, um, you know, I've had the opportunity to interface with him a little bit, you know, when I've been out at meetings in his Senate district. But 
I, I do know that he um, received some flack from at least a couple of members at the Channel 9 forum on that. And, um, you know, I just think we all have to be very thoughtful when we're putting these things together and, and what the optics of that are. How do you feel about the campaign so far, the debates? I watched the one where Dominic DeZuti was the host, the other one with Kyle Clark and Marshall and Anusha. They were both well handled, but there were a lot of people. Did you think they were done well? And did you feel like you had a fair opportunity? So a couple things. I think, um, you know, we're, we're going to continue to see a lot of uh, people that come to these that are already aligned with their own candidate. And um, I don't know how many people that are showing up uh, have are still undecided. I think the televising of them help people get to see who we are, but it's really hard for people to understand what you mean when you're asked a yes, no question and not allowed to elaborate. And um, it's, it's hard to understand in a one minute soundbite how much substance and depth there is to how you're going to solve a problem. And so that's, I think, the challenge in the process. I, I do appreciate that there are many different groups of people who want to get us in front of them uh, to hear where we stand on issues so that it helps them not only inform themselves, but their, you know, their membership, uh, their community to, you know, to see where they align with, with all of us. But again, you know, unless you have an adequate time to explain some of these things, I mean, you and I have been on this call for quite some time and, you know, it's it's hard to get into the details. Barely and, scratch the surface. Yeah, but but it, you do have the advantage of these longer editorial-type interviews, and I watched a couple of them with you. Have you done your Channel 9 interview yet? Not yet. That is scheduled, I believe, for next week with Kyle Clark. And how many of those do you think will be on the schedule? Thanks for doing mine. I know you did Channel 7. I watched that with my buddy Tony Kovaleski. Is Channel 4 doing it, Fox 31? And what about the newspapers? Are they all calling you in to see who they might yeah. endorse? Yeah, we, we've done uh, the Denver Post. Um, I did one with El Seminario and have been endorsed by them. Um, we've done. We've got one coming up with Channel 4 and with Channel 9. We did Channel 7. Um, you know, and obviously we're doing these with all the different um, membership groups like the Home Builders Association, which just uh, recently endorsed me. Um, we've done that with some of the labor groups like Fire and Sheriff, both of whom have endorsed me. Um, we've done that with some, a bunch of the labor unions. I've received several of those endorsements as well. Um, so it's, it's a lot of um, requests for filling out uh, questionnaires, and then some of that follows up with interviews. And in some cases, they're one-on-ones, and in other cases, it's uh, just kind of a forum format. And then a group will decide if they're able to do an endorsement, whether they're going to do that or not. Well, that's cool to have all those endorsements. Sounds like you're seeking them. Is there anybody else you want to talk about endorsing you? And I bet a lot of people are hoping for an endorsement from, I don't know, John Hickenlooper or Wellington Webb or Bill Ritter or 
Are you going after people too? So I have um, some former um, folks who have been in the public safety arena, like John Simonette, um, Butch Montoya, Ari Zavaris, um, who are all endorsing me wow. in, in campaign. Um, I've got uh, Steve Kaplan, who is my legal advisor for my campaign. We've got. He was um, the some, former city attorney? Yes. Yes. That's impressive. Um, so I have business people that are part of my campaign. Um, and, you know, I've had great and strong business, you know, a commitment to serving our business community going back to when I first got elected in 1987 and worked on the Lower Downtown Historic District and making sure we had funding to support them once we got the district passed. And this was, um, you know, my first big project where I had to bring two opposing sides together and find some middle ground. And we were successful doing that. And Lower Downtown has been an amazing um, success story for our city. It sure has. And I thought it would be, I'd scored a 10 out of 10, but you know, with the pandemic and the crime at Union Station, I'm not sure it's that high anymore. Can you get it back to a 10? Yes, we can. And again, I think these are all solvable problems. Um, you know, the other piece I wanted to talk about was the work we did in the Central Platte Valley, where the city played a major role in taking down the viaducts and putting in the parks and making it attractive for developers to come because we paid for part of that infrastructure for them to then um, locate their buildings down there. And that included, you know, the Pepsi Center and um, Coors Field. And then later, you know, the the football stadium uh, replacing where we got rid of McNichol Sports Arena. I mean, the fact that we're, you know, a sports town with so many different professional teams makes Denver attractive. I don't know if that's in in large part why we've seen a lot of people wanting to be here. I think a lot of it has to do with our close proximity to the mountains and our ski season and all of that. But I think a couple of things related to that that are important is how we continue as a a city and a, a whole region to protect our environment and look at building out a transportation system that connects people that can move them around the city without people having to be in their cars. But having said that, until we have the right kinds of connections to the mountains, people will still keep driving their cars. And, you know, I, a lot of people don't even know that you can go ski at winter park and take the ski train and not have to sit on I 70 traffic to go enjoy a day of skiing. Right, but you have to get up about five in the morning. I've (laughs) been there, done that, and that's pretty darn early. You bring up McNichols. I know you're so busy, but if you get Showtime, the movie Stand about Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf, who was Chris Jackson before he converted when he got to Denver, then he went and stand for the Star Spangled Banner, and it was such a controversy. It's a great movie with a lot of old Denver in it, including McNichols. And it just got me thinking, because I lived through that time, and so did you. I'm wondering about Denver as a city, you know, kind of back to where we started. 
desegregation, crusade for justice. Denver had its racist past. You know, my grandparents experienced the Klan a hundred years ago, exactly. And I thought Denver really got over it. I thought we got a lot better. But Donald Trump and Trumpism pulled the scab back. We saw everything that's happened. I think Denver needs a leader who can bring us together. I agree. You, and, and can you do that? I mean, how, what a job. How how could you bring us together, Debbie Ortega? I think, so first of all, Craig, you know everything we do is relational. And, and building relationships with people instead of burning bridges is how we make things happen. We have to cultivate relationships and we have to keep people engaged in conversations and focus on the topic and not the fact that we may disagree with each other and personalize things. And if we can do that, we can make, we can move mountains. And, and I really believe that we have an amazing city. And like I said, these are solvable problems. It just takes pulling people together to make this happen. As you know, we have so many employers that are dying for workers. We're not connecting all the different training programs, both publicly and privately funded that exist out there trying to help employers find workers and, and trying to train workers that are needed. And I think it's looking at how we close the gap on all different kinds of connections. I mean, you talk about this Colfax BRT that our city is taking the lead on. I want to see that Colfax BRT go all the way from Aurora to Golden and work with our neighboring counties. And if we can do that, then it changes the way the bus system works. We don't have to have all these buses come to downtown Denver. It also begins to address the brown cloud that we have. You know, not everybody will need to get in a car because we're addressing the connectivity issues in a much better way. We have to close the gap on the first mile, last mile connections. But when you think about this whole conversation of trying to do front range rail from Fort Collins to Pueblo, and that will come through our city. It needs to intersect with our transportation system. It can't be a standalone. And so it's all those pieces that come together that make it easier to live near transit stops, you know, where we are intentional about creating affordability that begin to make a difference for people who want to live close to where they work and, and be in a city that has, um, you know, diversity and a commitment to the arts and all the great things that we have happening in this city. But we have to address the crime and safety. We have to have the police force to do that. And we have to make sure that we've got a thriving downtown where people feel safe to come to. Right. Where all people feel safe and uh, a place where Everybody can gather. That's the way Denver felt yeah. for the longest time. And I know you told Tony Kovaleski you're reading Councilman Kevin Flynn's book that he wrote with my late friend Gary Gerhardt, The Silent Brotherhood, Inside yes. America's Racist Underground, about the murder of Allen Berg. I yes. urge you, if you have time, and I know you don't, but there's a great book by Stephen Singular on the death of Allen Berg called Talk to Death. You should read both of them. But the bottom line is there's a lot of racism out there. And I would say ever since I left high school and being a prosecutor in Denver, I thought, you know, it's getting better. 
and that Denver is a progressive city. Look, we had a black DA, black mayor. We've had a Hispanic mayor. And that was all very interesting. But Denver's never had a female mayor. And I'm wondering, as a Hispanic woman, have you experienced racism in your life? And have you experienced sexism? And which is worse? And do you think that's part of a modern reality? Just react to that, if you would, Debbie. Yeah, I think all of that is still alive and present. Um, I think it's how you react to it and and how you get beyond it and stay focused on the things you're trying to get done. And again, as the mayor of a, a major city that is a strong mayor form of government, I intend to lead by example. And I also intend to ensure that we have a cabinet that reflects the diversity of our city and that has professionals who are, for example, in our housing office, I want somebody who has actually done housing development, who understands the number crunching part of it and all the nuances of what it takes to get a project done. Um, in our in our permit office, I don't believe it's in the right place, but I want to have conversations. But in the meantime, we're going to get those projects process because Denver's going to be open for business. We're going to have employees back to work. And, you know, you have to have exceptions for some of these variants that still keep cropping up as people get sick and are, you know, have COVID. But at the same time, when we have front facing offices and we deliver services to the public, we have to be back at work. And those are a couple critical pieces of what I will do, and sometimes they're not popular decisions, and I've, you know, had a history of not always falling in line with previous administrations on different issues, and, you know, I'm going to continue to stand up for our taxpayers and make sure that we're being frugal with taxpayer dollars and looking at where we can cut things and, and be a lot more efficient in our operations before I ever go back to the taxpayers asking them to just keep funding more and more and more things. Here's my impression of you. I saw you on city council the other night while those East High students were testifying. That was pretty heartbreaking. But my point is this, that you're running for mayor, which is really got to occupy a lot of your time. You're a city councilwoman, and you've never stopped working it seems to me you are an exceptionally hard worker. Is that how you win a citywide race? You're the one with the experience. How do you do it? How how did you win your last race? And will that be the way you win this one too? Yeah, I mean, part of it is um, you don't stop until that last vote is cast. And that's exactly what I'm doing. Um, the first day off I've had since Christmas was on Sunday. I had my youngest granddaughter who was here from the military visiting the family and I wanted to spend that day with her. So I told my staff I needed that day off so I could have some family time. And, you know, sometimes you just need to rejuvenate your energy and being with my family was uh, exactly what I needed to just uh, jump back in and, and keep uh, going at it nonstop until, you know, that last boat is cast. Well, you are a hard worker, and you've given me so much of your time, Debbie Ortega. I feel like I know you a lot better now, and I want to thank you for your service to Denver and thank wish you, you the best of luck as you 
try to take on this big job. Thank you so much. I appreciate your time as well. All right. Be safe. Take care. Bye. You too. Bye-bye. Michael, of course, is a great sponsor of my show. But more than that, he's my lawyer, my end-of-life planning lawyer. And I've got two dogs. What about you? I have two dogs right now as well. And not only do you love your dogs at home with your kids and your wife, but you get involved with dog issues in your law practice. Tell everybody about that. So I will write pet trusts, which is you can earmark money to take care of your pets. Um, You know, a lot of people, you know, they've got their dogs and they love their dogs. But then if somebody were to, you know, if if you were to pass away, you know, who's going to take your dogs? Who would would love your dogs as much as you do? I don't know that anybody would love your dogs as much as you do. But like, I grew up with dogs. And so if I were to pass away, then my parents or my siblings could take the dogs. So when you set up a pet trust, you can dictate who's going to get those dogs and then who you can leave money to take care of the dogs as well. I like working with you and I think you are ahead of your time. You have 15 different locations. How cool is that? It is nice to be able to go to all the different locations and, you know, meet people where it's comfortable and more convenient for them. And nobody wants to drive from one part of Metro Denver to the other to meet with a lawyer. You will come to them. Yep. And I'll deal with traffic so you don't have to. Tell us how people can get in touch with you. My direct phone number is 720-394-6887. Or they can go to my website, which is mobileestateplanning.com. And again, that's mobileestateplanning.com. And there's even a schedule, you know, there's a book an appointment link on this on the website. All right, Michael Bailey. Thank you. Hi, Craig. Hey, Troubadour. How are you? Not bad for a working man during the second year of Putin's horrible war on Ukraine? No, that's very true. Isn't that sickening? At least we have Joe Biden. I was proud of him this week. How about you? I have been. Oh, yeah. I mean, since the um, State of the Union and and his commitment to Ukraine, I mean, I think he's handled it well. I'm down with that. I agree. And it's kind of a revelation that he has the energy to go on these foreign trips, to walk up and down yes. those stairs, and he doesn't seem like an 80-year-old to me. No, he's doing well. I think he's proving a lot of people wrong. Maybe he's assuaging the the uh, age fears that so many people had. I, I mean, I, I have a lot of friends who vote who voted for him who since kind of, you know, pulled their support thinking that, you know, mentioning dementia and his age and everything like that. I've I've stuck by him. I mean, looking at his policies, you and I have talked about it. I think that's the way to go because yeah. he can beat Trump and I don't see anybody in the GOP doing that. It's really frightening. I'm scared as hell because if Trump gets in there, then Ukraine is really up Shed's Creek. Could well be. That's right. He didn't seem to have uh, any commitment to helping them, did he? No. He was no. the guy who undermined them. The Ukrainian shakedown, it's all interlinked. And you can see how Trump media is totally ignoring this anniversary. They don't like Zelensky. And when you think about it, it's because Putin got exposed, Trump is exposed, 
You and I have gone around and about on this. I believe that Putin helped Trump become president. I believe it's all about the algorithms and that Facebook was involved and it made a big difference. Whether it's fair or not, both sides do whatever it takes to win. But let's acknowledge that having foreigners, especially Russia involved, it's horrible. And Putin is the world's richest man. He's the head of the Russian mafia and he's bought a lot of people. I still think we've been infiltrated and that's really problematic, not just for us, but for Ukraine, which is on the front lines. Are you buying it anymore now, Troubadour? Well, I mean, you know, what you say about Putin is true being the richest man, you know, but I do think his, uh, <laughs> he might be the richest man, but I still think he's, you know, he's, he's, he's stymied by this war. I mean, things are not looking good for him. I mean, he can't be happy with the way, with the way his war is playing out. And, and it's not obvious how he's going to, you know, even, you know, even pull back with any kind of dignity intact. So, you know, he's, you know, I think he's facing a, a you know, a tough, a tough next year. Well, maybe. But the problem is that anybody who rises up against him, they get put in jail. And then the other thing is the intelligentsia who are leaving the country, he wants them gone. That makes society easier for him to control. Also, we would think it's terrible. Up to 500,000 people may be killed. He doesn't look at it that way. So he's sociopathic. It's a problem. And China may hold a, a really important vote in all of this. But so does the United States. We are the superpower. And again, it seems to me, in for a dime, in for a dollar, let's give them the overhead protection and the ability to protect their territory. Why yeah. Why do half measures? Right, right. So, well, I'm with you. They're the ones that are put there. It, it all falls on their shoulders. I mean, it's it's easy for us to give them weapons. It's what's hard is to go out there in the fields and go up front line and put your life at risk, you know. That's um, right. They're the ones doing it, and it's true that they're doing it. I mean, they're doing it for Ukraine, but it's, you know, Europe and the free world is benefiting. It's all right there. Seems yeah. pretty close, although it's the argument we heard about Vietnam. Holy cow, if they get Vietnam, then it's the domino theory. Then they'll get Japan and are we, is it because Ukraine is closer to us on Europe's doorstep? Right. It's, well, that's, that's an interesting question, you know. Um, I mean, the Ukrainian people don't, I'll tell you, maybe this is not, not a fair thing to say, but they don't look that different from us. And I, but I do believe that makes a difference, you know. I think so. Yeah. Right. And, uh. I think people can identify with with Ukrainians. They look, they could be, you know, you look at them, they could be, you know, Americans, right? They could, they, they could live, I mean, they, they could live next to us. So I think it's easier for people to, to uh, you know, think of them as, as, as an ally. Right. And, yeah. uh, but is that fair? It raises all it's sorts of issues, but the, the bottom not, line is necessarily fair. Yeah, they're, they're our neighbor and their home is getting attacked. And are we just going to watch it? Then what do we do about Poland? It's on our doorstep. Uh, Volodymyr Zelensky is still alive a year later. It's Shabbat again. Let's say yep. a baruchah for him. 
I hope that Hashem will look after him. It's so remarkable you and I talk about the right song and um, Joe Biden going to Keeb. I was thinking about Keeb because my friend Greg Gold, who's also on the show today, along with Debbie Ortega, I care a lot about Denver and I care about Keeb. I've never been there, but Greg Gold said it's a lot like Denver. Beautiful city wow. and uh, said in a, a setting not dissimilar from Denver and he was just there. And along the way during the interview, people will hear it before you and I record this. He said the trip was such a revelation to him. And here we are with your song Revelation Town, which could be Denver, but this week let's make it Kiev. Okay. What is it really about your song Revelation Town? Well, I was just I think I was I was uh looking at the at the similarities in the modern day to some of the ancient prophecies, you know, what we think to, as, as, uh, you know, biblical events, right. Things, things, things that have come down through the ages, um, you know, whether it's a plague or, or a, a war or whatever, and the end of days being imminent, that kind of thing. And, uh, I think what I was, you know, commenting on is you could look at, today's society and see the same thing who that's ominous that's a little yeah. dark like though it is it is i mean one of the, the key i think the the phrase and i haven't listened to it lately but there ain't nothing going down in revelation town which is you know say revelations right right that all right that ain't happening right here is basically what i'm saying it's mm -hmm. it's uh you can you can see that you can see so much of of uh that, you know, that biblical interpretation in today's world. Right, and the drones buzzing over Kiev, and they're in fear of what those drones can do, how long before that happens over Denver. And I just think that there's a risk of that kind of world if we allow this to happen in a modern industrial country like Ukraine, which wants to be part of Europe, and why can't they be? Meanwhile, we keep getting manipulated by algorithms and whatnot, and Fox News. You know I'm not a violent guy, but honest to goodness, Tucker Carlson, he said, you know, we're wasting our money on Ukraine, and Zelensky's a crook. It's unbelievable what the guy says. And Is that what he's saying these days? Yes, and he said, oh, now there's a new war aim. They want to take the Russian port of Crimea. Really? That's Russian now because they stole it a few years ago? If you look back... Wow. Yeah, and, and so yeah, the guy, he's, he, they love him in Moscow. Boy, it's no wonder. Yeah, no, he chooses his words carefully when he says the Russian port. Yeah, you see who's, who he's siding with. Right, and he sides with Tucker Carlson and his pocketbook because when he knew that Fox News was calling Arizona correctly for Biden— he went nuts, and in an internal text that came out through the lawsuit by Dominion, he told Sean Hannity and Laura Ingram, we've got to fire these guys. We're going to get beat by Newsmax and these other right-wing organizations. Trump is on our ass. And they turned it around, and they started telling the big lie about the election. And nothing right. has done more to undermine democracy it's Vladimir Putin's wet dream. I went back and read my Colorado Sun column endorsing Biden, 
And I said it right there, too, about Putin being part of the problem. I still think Putin and Trump are joined at the hip. And, you know, it's kind of a happy day that Zelensky survived for a year and Kiev still stands. That's a revelation. Nobody thought that would happen. You know, you you mentioned the number. I I hadn't heard, I mean, the number 500,000. What I had heard is, um, you know, on on, on NPR, there there was, you know, some world agency that estimated 200,000 right. Russian casualties. Right. Okay. That, I mean, let's come, let's compare that to, to Vietnam, American casualties. You know I mean? It's gotta be, um, I mean, I don't know. It was over times. just a little, it was over 50 as I recall. Right. Which was, which was, which was horrific. Right. And look at this, this is maybe four times as many people have lost their lives and why, you know, it's one man's war. It's terrible. It's awful. And it's, 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 it's awful that some people in America like Tucker Carlson, Marjorie Taylor Greene, and Lauren Boebert would support that. How could they? It's awful. Well, I, I mean, think uh, follow the money. Follow the money. The world's richest guy, he can buy a lot of influence. And the other thing, not dissimilar from when your dad had to leave Germany, the major goal of the right wing is to own the libs. They don't care. They just want to uh, own Joe Biden, own the globalists, own you, own me. Anybody who doesn't get down with their MAGA program, it, it, it's a sickness, and it's not done yet. No, no, I agree. No. I don't know when we could see. I don't know if being done will ever happen in our time. I mean, you know, but, uh, you know, obviously these next two years as we approach this next election, it's going to be interesting. I don't know um, if I've ever told you. Huh? I, I love your music, but occasionally I cheat. You know, there's a song by Mike and the Mechanics, which is one of my top 10 songs. You know what it is? No. All I need is a miracle. That's all we oh. need. I think right. that some situations could happen. It looked bleak during World War II, during your dad's time, right? And then people came to their senses and good triumphed over evil. Yeah, but there was a major defeat. I mean, but first what had to happen was Germany and Japan had to be vanquished. You know, I don't think anybody's looking at Russia as as a country that's going to be vanquished. But you said it. That's what has to happen. Putin needs to be vanquished. And we have to talk about that. And it shouldn't be we're with Ukraine, as long as it takes, it should be whatever it takes. And really, getting rid of Putin, I mean, that's a priority by any means necessary. You know, short of that, there's going to have to be, you know, maybe there'll be some negotiation. I just don't see, I don't see it happening right now. But, um, you know, hopefully if that, if there's ever a glimmer of hope, hopefully, you know, Ukraine would be open to something. Well, I I hope that Tucker Carlson isn't doing the negotiating because he already said it's the Russian port of Crimea. He gave it to him. Right. What what a great American. Holy cow. Yeah. Well, Troubadour, you are a great American. Thanks for doing this today. Thanks for your wonderful song, Revelation Town. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. We'll talk soon. Okay, bye-bye.
Kentucky World come to an end That's how they've been talking Ever since the world began Don't worry, darling There ain't no thing to fear Ain't nothing coming down Revelation town Ain't already happening here No, it's said in the Bible Bad things gonna come Ain't nothing to do, babe But go out and have our fun Yeah, had our share of trouble No use crying in our beer Nothing coming down Revelation Town Ain't already happening here It's attitude, mine. The legal skills, mine. The support staff, incredible. Find us online soon at CraigsColoradoLaw.com. Find me right now on Twitter at Craig's Colorado. Craig Silverman, a voice for victims.
I want to read you a story that was in the Warren, Ohio Tribune Chronicle uh, this February, February 12, 2023, about our pal Greg Gold. The war in Ukraine goes on, Putin's war. And it is important Greg Gold realizes that We could not spend a lot of time on introductions. You can go to prior shows, episode 95, when we first started talking about Ukraine and Greg's involvement. Let me read you the recent front page above the fold story in the Warren Tribune Chronicle, February 12, 2023. Headline, Warren native Greg Gold's heart is in Ukraine. Subhead, Greg Gold travels with supplies to warring nation. Back in Denver after his second trip to Ukraine, Greg Gold said growing up in Warren and spending time with his grandparents and their friends who fought in World War II taught him to understand the difference between a war that would help the United States and the world versus one that is ambiguous. This is a quote by Greg. They put it in italics. This war by Russia against Ukraine is morally unambiguous. Russia is wrong and Ukraine is right. And I'm proud of our country for sticking up for Ukraine. Close quote, Gold said. An attorney and father of three, Gold, the son of Warren attorney Ned Gold, abruptly decided to take his first trip to Ukraine In May, when a trial was settled early and two weeks opened up in his schedule, he intended to fly to Krakow, Poland, and travel to the Ukrainian border to help with humanitarian aid, something Boy Scout-like, he said. But they didn't need anyone at the border. They needed tactical equipment, Gold said. One of Gold's paralegals, Victoria Siwecki is from Ukraine and knew someone in Denver who knew someone in Lviv, Ukraine, who could pick up gold at the border and drive him to the city, and that's exactly what happened. Wearing a cowboy hat and traveling with his fiancée, Rose Robinson, Gold walked across the border with two suitcases full of tourniquets, bandages, and as much tactical equipment as he could buy online. He immediately was prompted by signs to download an air raid application on his phone that would alert him if fighter planes or missiles were coming. From there, Gold traveled a little more than 40 miles to Lviv. In Ukraine, Gold met a Ukrainian attorney and father of three, Alex Gorgon, who at age 47 had volunteered to join the army to defend his country. He was in his military outfit, incredibly smart, speaks many languages. I could tell he had great character, too, Gold said of Gorgon. He accepted the two suitcases, and I could just tell instantly what a hero this guy was and how much I could relate to him. By the way, that's all on episode 95, along with Alex Gorgon, both of them in Craig's Lawyer's Lounge. Back to this front-page story. Returning to Denver, Gold realized he wanted to do more. He got involved with Ukraine Aid Fund, a Colorado nonprofit 
dedicated to getting needed items to individual Ukrainian soldiers. In September, Gold went to Washington, D.C. to see Gorgon, who had come for a short trip to speak with U.S. leaders. Staying involved in the cause and in touch with Gorgon, Gold soon found the troops needed electronics such as computers, tablets, and phones for coordination and communication. In January, he decided once again to travel to Ukraine, this time all the way to its capital city, Keep. The difference between May and January, the morale is so much better, Gold said. More of the buses are open. There's more people in the street, and there's more optimism. The Ukrainian community in Krakow sang in the square every evening, Gold said. In Lviv, the power has been knocked out, but if generators were working, stores and restaurants were operating business as usual. And Kiev, aside from an 11 p.m. curfew and dim streetlights, was like being in Denver or Pittsburgh and felt even safer, Gold said. Kiev, it's gorgeous, it's functioning, there are traffic jams, Gold said. Captured Russian tanks were sitting in the square, he said. Obviously American in his cowboy outfit, Gold said that several times during his trip, Ukrainians came up and thanked him. It's beautiful to be American again, Gold said. Back home in Denver, Gold has been spending time with more than a dozen Ukrainian teenagers who were flown to the city for a two-week trip through the Ukraine aid fund. All of the teens lost their fathers in the war, Gold said. Among them is a 14-year-old girl whose father was killed in the much-publicized battle for a steel plant in Mariupol. Her mother was taken prisoner. She has no parents, and she's in good spirits and wants to fight and wants to win, Gold said. The teens, many of whom had never been on an airplane before, are being treated to the Colorado experience with skiing, go-karting, visits to national parks, and tours of Denver. Gold said Ukraine Aid Fund brought the teens there not only to give them a little relief, but to broaden their experiences and help them build networks in the U.S., which matters because they're the future of their country. As the war nears its one-year mark, Gold marvels that last February, he couldn't have picked Ukraine out on a map. Now he has traveled to the country twice and has made one of the best friends of his life, he said. Though he still doesn't speak a single word of Ukrainian, Gold said he would go back to Ukraine for a third time or a 20th, 30th, or 40th time. I learned something each time, Gold said. He added, laughing, and everyone knows I don't shut up about it, too. It's a great honor to hear from Greg Gold on this subject. Thank you for letting me read that. And to know an American hero, Greg Gold, went to Kiev during the war to help Alex Gorgon. That's cool, man. Thanks for letting me put it on the podcast. Now, during the pandemic and otherwise, a lot of people have so much affection for their pets. That must come up all the time. What's going to happen to Scruffy? What can you tell us about that, Michael Bailey? What you can do is create a pet trust in Colorado. You put money into trust, and then that money is available and earmarked to care for the dog. And it can last the lifetime of the dog or 21 years, whichever is shorter. And then when the time frame for the trust is up, you can dictate who 
gets whatever leftover money or I have several clients who will leave it to some sort of animal shelter or animal rescue to be able to care for other animals. How cool is that? You can go to Mike Bailey's office and he has offices all over and you could meet at your home, whatever. I love the way you practice law. You've kept it going for a long time. Tell everybody how they can make you their lawyer. So my phone number is 720-394-6887. And again, that's 720-394-6887. They can call me or they can go online to mobileestateplanning.com. And there's a link there where you can schedule an appointment with me. Okay, here's the thing. You've been hurt. Maybe, God forbid, someone's been killed. You don't know what to do. If it happened in Colorado, please get a hold of me. Check out my website, craigscoloradolaw.com. Craigscoloradolaw.com because I have four decades of experience. Sadly, I've helped a lot of people who have been hurt terribly through no fault of their own. 303-734-7156. Please call Craig. Craig Silverman, a voice for victims. 303-734-7156. Hey, that's our show. Wasn't it a beauty? I'm proud of you, Greg Gold. So is Warren, Ohio, after that story in your hometown paper. Dave Gunders, great discussion. And your song, Revelation Town, Darker than usual from you, the master of love songs, but these are difficult, dark times. Denver is hurting too. Debbie Ortega may be the solution. She's certainly somebody dedicated to public service. I sure do appreciate you joining me every week. Tell a friend, five stars, subscribe. I like to do it on iTunes, Apple, to leave a review. You know what to do. Next week, Mike Rothschild, the foremost expert on QAnon, which the Republican Party has sort of become. You don't want to miss this show. Special guest, Mike Rothschild. Coming weeks, other mayoral candidates, including Leslie Herod. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Tune in live every Saturday morning, 9 to noon, Mountain Time. Visit thecraigsilvermanshow.com for the podcast, blog, and more. Be sure to subscribe on all major podcasting platforms to be updated when new episodes are available. This has been The Craig Silverman Show.